Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Ian Jamie. Ian is the Managing Director of Steger Clear Packaging Limited, a transparent packaging firm based in Coventry, Warwickshire. Ian, a very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Good morning to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme, Ian. And the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and different business leaders having to really feel their way through this unprecedented crisis. Tell me, for somebody working within um, the manufacturing and packaging industry, such as yourself, how has it been adapting to meeting this very difficult challenge because I can imagine it's been quite difficult on the one hand, but also you've redirected your operations to produce visors for the NHS as well. Correct. Yes, that's true. I mean, I suppose I'm an entrepreneur at heart and always have been having set up a number of businesses. And and as you probably know, the, the plastic packaging world wasn't going particularly well last year and we were looking for other opportunities. And coming into this year, uh, we had envisaged a rather very average year this year, but in budgetary terms. And and I don't, I know a lot of people have suffered because of COVID, and I don't really I'm fully sensitive to that. But it has provided an opportunity for this business, um, dare I say it, um, in that you know we sat around the table and we said, oh, why don't we look at visors and. Uh, and we did, we kind of created or designed a few of them, and we were fortunate in a few of the National Health Trust took them up um, in quite a lot of you know big quantities, really. And so we kind of kind of pivoted away from packaging into producing these visors, and that's kept us incredibly busy for the last three months. And I on Friday last week I signed a contract with the National Health Service to produce a huge amount um, per week. So uh, I am envisage us being incredibly busy going forward. Uh, they haven't signed it back yet, but I'm hoping to get it today. So it's not totally in the bag, but I'm really excited about it, as we all are here. Um, so really, we haven't furloughed anybody. We've been incredibly busy. Um, so that, I suppose, a bit of good fortune for us amongst the bad fortune for other people. It has been a very challenging time for business of course and a very tragic time as you've rightfully said Ian but I think you are right in the sense that there will be a great deal of opportunities to come from this and a good few positive aspects as well not just because businesses within arenas such as yours are being able to thrive during this period for various reasons but also that businesses um, who haven't innovated before and now having their hand forced into doing so that will help make them more resilient for the future and also it's brought us closer together and captured a real sense of unity this time hasn't it there's a renewed focus on mental health well-being sustainability as well most importantly and these are all very very good things to take forward as well as that we're seeing so many people really pushing the boundaries going out of their comfort zones to keep things ticking over whether they've continued to work as normal or whether they've adapted to remote working and and that's also going to be an incredibly important experience in their development. And for today's leaders, crisis management experience as well. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I mean, on that, that uh, at the beginning of the crisis, uh, my wife developed a few symptoms and uh, 
um, it meant that I had to uh, go into self-isolation for two weeks. And I had my Chris Page, my commercial director, he had to ha- hold the fort all on his own uh, because we had largely the, the office staff working from home. And it, it was a big problem. And I think that the, the factory staff felt very isolated. They'd come in, they would see Chris, and they wouldn't see me. Not that I'm, you know, I'm saying but I'm a great person. But, you know, nevertheless, it, you know, they didn't feel very comfortable. I got back to work, and I tried to reassure everybody we're all in this together. And uh, we took appropriate steps with social distancing. And, uh, you know, we've done our kind of risk analysis and that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think we're in a much quite, you know, we, the canteen is very, you know, we only have one person to the table, that kind of thing. But it, it was a difficult time because they were saying, well, we're, we're really worried about this, Ian, and should we be at work? But we've got through it. And uh, thanks to Chris Page, my commercial director that held the fort in a very difficult time, showed excellent leadership. And, uh, and we're a happy little band. But we're not a huge company. There's only about 40, 50 of us here. But we all know each other really well, and I think we trust each other. I hope, anyway. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've seen so many good things uh, from people who've, um, as we said, really had to sort of step up to the plate during this time. And I can imagine it's been inspiring for you, hasn't it, um, Ian? Would you say that the reaction of those around you has been a real source of inspiration, and that you've always oh, been surprised totally, by that? Totally agree, Joshua. And I'm hoping that this whole episode will improve our society and the communities and. I'm proud of my workforce here. They they really have come to work and given their all uh, to try and help. It wasn't just for financial reasons. They've come to, which obviously is important, but they really felt they were doing the country a, a good turn. And uh, no, I, I, I'm amazed by them, if I'm honest. And I'm amazed my office staff as well. And not just that, the wider community that uh, I think we are much more caring towards each other um, now than perhaps we were. And hopefully that will continue and, you know, the world will change. It won't be all about making tons of money that it might have been in the past. I think there's a more realism now that actually, you know, we're all in this together. I would agree with that. I think um, there's a real sense of a unity that's come about as um, a result of this. And let's hope that we can certainly take that forward as well. And we've talked there about how the reaction from those within your business, Ian, and also the general population has been one to draw inspiration from. But if we backtrack for a moment, what else would you say have been some big inspirations and maybe even influences throughout you your career as you've developed? Well, I think... Um, a noticeable example is a company called Marks and Spencers. We all know Marks and Spencers, but you know, mm. in terms of plastic, they were instrumental in pioneering recycled PET going back 10, 15 years. And I got on board with them as their approved supplier for my little industry. And we took it on board and worked really hard with them to make a difference. So is that we were using old water bottles that you put out at your doorstep that gets recycled, gets reprocessed, re-extruded, and we buy that off the British extruders. And so to use up our waste, and it, it's worked perfectly, thanks to Marks and Spencer, who did a lot of the research into all this, and it's all food approved. So they have been uh, a beacon to me as a company in that they have cared far more about our environment long before other people got involved and that's including the other supermarkets you know they were the ones that the people were following and i think to an extent they still do in terms of the environment 
So to me, they are a special company. And I, when I retire, I will think very fondly of them. And it comes back to sustainability, doesn't it? And how that's come under renewed focus during this time. During it, going into the future, that's something that we really do need to focus on, isn't it? Meeting, of course, the uh, the climate challenges. Correct. Um, Correct. Because it's going to be one of the next uh, big things on the, uh, the horizon for sure. There is a uh, net zero carbon emissions by 2050 goal looming on yeah. the horizon as well. So. And the Prime Minister has already said that the COVID-19 pandemic is not going to be any distractions as we move towards that. So keeping that in the forefront of the mind is going to be incredibly important for the next generation of leaders in business. Quite. I I totally agree with you. And just to add in that our visors are made from British plastic, made from British recycled food-grade waste. Our water bottles, once again, put out at the doorstep. So I wrote to the Prime Minister two or three times over the last a couple of months say please buy British please buy British please buy British because you know we've got to step up now as British industry to um, be able to supply what I call essential products to the National Health Service and do it in a a way that is sustainable which I think we have done here and I'm sure there are other people doing it as well but we have certainly done it here Mm. and buying British may well be on the horizon for sure because during this pandemic what's been ticking on behind the scenes is of course post-Brexit trade negotiations with the European Union and we're no closer to knowing there whether or not there's going to be a deal by the end of the year Quite, well uh, yes once again it's, it's what I read in the papers what you read in the papers uh, I mean obviously I am working for a European company and I deal day to day with French, German, Swiss, Spanish employees and co-workers uh, so I, I you know I work very happily with my European colleagues uh, so in a way there's a part of me that's slightly sad about all this but mm. on the other hand we can't roll back globalization but what we can do is say to ourselves in the event of this happening again we have to be able to produce stuff in the UK and it won't be us just saying that the Germans will be saying that the French will be saying that as well uh, and there's nothing wrong with that I would agree wholeheartedly with that, Ian, for sure. And if we do focus on what the future now holds for yourself and for Steger as we do move through this pandemic, move through this year, and hopefully emerge and look to the real long-term future, what do you really hope to achieve? Well, I'm retiring in December, and I would love to set this company up as a PP supplier to the National Health Service, and that's the care workers as well, the general care industry into the future. And I was down last Friday at one of the top men of the National Health Service showing him our designs, and he was very interested in it. So I'd love to leave this company in a far better place uh, at the end of the year, as it might have seemed at the beginning of the year. Um, And I really want to supply these well into the future in quite big quantities. And uh, we'll have to invest, we'll have to show initiative, and we'll have to, you know, as I say, take the odd risk, uh, which... uh, I'm used to doing. But uh, so, no, that's where I see us going. The packaging will always be there, but it's, it's, it's become smaller uh, as the years have progressed because, as you rightly said, is sustainability, single-use packaging, which ours isn't because it's all recycled and et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, that's where I see us going. 
And let's certainly hope that that uh, will be the case, Ian, uh, for sure. And I think it'll be fantastic um, if in a year's time we could have a look back and just see where the uh, the business is at. Of course, I know you'll be um, retired uh, by then, but I think hopefully it'll be well on its way to um, a brighter future due to uh, the state that you've left it in, for sure. Well, I, I'm absolutely sure of that. And I mean, uh, I'll still be around next year looking on because I set this business up from nothing in 1999. So I've got a lot of emotion attached to it. And I really want it to succeed and employ more people from this area and uh, and be healthy and be a happy place for everybody to come to. And I think that's going to be incredibly important as well with this renewed focus on mental health and well-being, and especially in the workplace. Exactly right. Um, Ian, got to say, it's been a real pleasure having you on the, uh, the programme with us today and also an incredibly insightful experience as well. And do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on. And do, when December comes around also, enjoy your retirement. Thank you, Joshua. Very kind. Thank you very much, everybody. Bye-bye. That was Ian Jamie speaking, the Managing Director of Stager Clear Packaging Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is, of course, an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, despite being blind from birth, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair and serving as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same 
products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in 
And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be the prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.